This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're talking monsoonal storms and flash floods in Southern Utah with one of our regional meteorologists. My name is Megan Stackhouse, and I'm a meteorologist with the National Weather Service office in Grand Junction, Colorado. Like most of us, Megan has been closely following the monsoonal events that have been hitting the Southwest this 2021 monsoon season. But monsoons are not a guarantee in Southern Utah. So as people that have been here for the last several years know, it's been quite a while since we've had a really good monsoon season. So the monsoon, it's the North American monsoon. Basically it's a wind shift that happens during the summer months, typically in our area, mid-June through the end of September. And with it, we get basically that wind shift to southerly winds, and we're able to tap into that subtropical moisture coming in from uh, the Pacific, the Gulf of Mexico, that neck of the woods. Typically, we get that every single summer, and we get a lot of good moisture coming in, and that leads to quite a bit of precipitation. It's when we get the bulk of our summer rain. But the last few years, we had not had a monsoon season. We were kind of cut off from this ridge of high pressure, so we weren't able to get any of that moisture. But luckily this year, we've been in a favorable position with the weather pattern, so we've been able to get that moisture. So that's kind of why we've been seeing this typical monsoon season with the the cooler weather and the showers and thunderstorms. Do you have a sense of how much rain we've been getting this year? Do you know if it's an average amount that we've seen in the past, or where are we right now with our with our rainfall? For the Canyonlands Airport out there, they have received so far this month 1.78 inches, which is actually for this state, this time of the month, it is 1.39 inches above normal. And to kind of put it into perspective from last this time last year, on August 20th, the Moab Airport had only received 0.39 inches. So we've had, you know, over an inch more than that from this time last year. And so far for the year, they are finally above normal for the year so far. So since January 1st, the Canyonlands Airport has received four inches. And that is just under quarter of an inch above normal for the year so far. So that's great to see. Definitely some much needed moisture. So it's a welcome relief. Can you talk about what is meant by normal, especially for those of us who who have lived here and I I can't even imagine what normal would be for this region. How is normal determined? So it's basically for the last 30 years. Usually we try to do anything larger than that. So for the Canyonlands Airport, they've actually only been in service since 1991, or at least our weather observations there. So their normal is taking the average between 1991 to 2020. Oh, interesting. So it's not as long of a time frame maybe as I would have thought to compare to. There's been a lot of variation in, in the in that time period. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. And then um, that's why if we have our cooperative observers, they are weather observers that they go back, you know, as far as the 1900s, like here, us here in the Grand Junction area, we've had records going back to 1893. So that's why we really typically refer to the cooperative observers and their observations because they have that much longer data set. But just for the daily climate totals, we just look at the automated sensors at the airport just to give a quick gist of what's been going on. Yeah, I'm not familiar with how long the Canyonland or the Moab area, they've had records going back to much before 1991 though. I've been curious, you know, when we're getting these precipitation amounts, 
I live kind of higher up in in the Moab area and I can look down over and see that it's raining over just a specific area and not raining over me. Is there a sense of how variable the rainfall is in this in this area, you know, geographically and and is that is there a way to account for that in in how we measure rain or is that is that more challenging based on where the the stations are? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So that's one of the main concerns that we have, or main forecast concerns that we have when trying to forecast the weather for all these areas across eastern Utah and western Colorado during the monsoon season. Basically, you know, we have scattered showers and thunderstorms in the area, and depending on where those showers and storms develop, you know, one part of town might get a ton of moisture, and the other part might get just a couple of hundreds. So Luckily, with the last uh, two days, we had a system that just brought some steady rain, periods of steady rain. So actually looking at rainfall totals in the Moab area, it's generally between 1.3 to 1.5 inches. So two tens, that's not too bad with variability. But then if you look at other areas, so here in Grand Junction, for instance, the last two days, some areas saw half an inch, but then other areas saw close to one and a half inches. So that's an inch variability across the city. That's the big challenge with the monsoon season, just trying to get an accurate forecast out there, but then also taking into account what the individual thunderstorms are going to produce. And then also the terrain has a big influence. In the Moab area, we get some favorable storms where we have things developing coming in from the southeast. We have the terrain, they're able to drift into the valley. So yeah, we got a lot of challenges out here with trying to get an accurate forecast, but also understanding that there's gonna be some really small scale influences on what ends up happening. So, you know, with these large monsoonal rains, you know, come these flash floods. And so how are you, how are you able to predict these flood events? Um, what, what are you using to, to determine whether a flood's going to happen? So the main thing is just first being situationally aware about what's already been happening. Back in July, we had, it was, I think, at least, you know, five to seven days of consistent influence with the, from that monsoonal moisture. So taking into account how much precipitation an area has already received is the first step to determine how saturated the soil is and how likely things are going to absorb into the ground, if at all. So that's kind of the first step, just being situationally aware about what's already happened. Then we just have a bunch of weather models. We have you know very large scale models that focus on the entire weather pattern across the United States. And then we have some that are more so focused for the regional levels, so just the Southwest United States. Then we have our very high resolution models, which take into account, we have one that has a forecast for, it updates every 15 minutes, which is awesome high resolution data. So yeah, just taking into account all these models, we just look at everything, we kind of learn the biases of each model, which ones tend to overestimate in certain flow patterns. So that's where we apply our local knowledge so we just take into account what the models are telling us. And then we also apply our local knowledge just based on how the topography is going to influence things. So if the Moab area might be blocked from the terrain in a certain flow pattern. So just taking that into account. And then we just kind of get an idea about how much there's a lot. <laughs> I guess going forever. Um, talking about instability. So if there's some really strong thunderstorms that are forecast that day that could even produce even higher rainfall totals, taking into account how dry the lower levels are, if it's just been a little bit, it's been a while since they've gotten any rain, if things are gonna evaporate before they hit the surface. So it's just 
like I said, I could go on forever. So it's, it's a very detailed process trying to get an accurate forecast for what's going to happen with um, flash flooding. That's so interesting. And you're presumably kind of just like pulling all of this information into into models. Is that, would that be correct? Or is there just, you said you also, you know, there's, you know, human knowledge in there. You also then just like looking at the model and being like, well, what, what do we think is going to happen? How does that, how does that actual process end up working? So the models, the computer models, they're all generated out of these supercomputers located in DC and a bunch of other areas. Luckily, we don't have to calculate anything by ourselves anymore. We did those equations in college and that was enough. Um, but luckily the computers are doing that all for us now. But they just kind of give us a graphical output for um, what's gonna happen with the weather. They show us where the heaviest precipitation is favored. They show us what the overall wind pattern's gonna be. So we just take a look at the graphic models and then we ingest it into our own forecast system. And we actually get to, it's pretty cool. We get to use like a drawing tool. We get to use like a little pencil. We get to just really hone in on the areas that we think is gonna receive what they're gonna receive. So we just kind of draw around and just kind of make a graphical output about what we think is gonna happen. And then that, our computers then spit it out into a text format that says, you know, showers and thunderstorms across the area rainfall totals between half an inch and an inch. So it's a pretty cool process. It's a very complicated process, but we just try to break it down so it is easy to understand with the public. Do you have an estimate of error? Like how much, is there a way to know generally how accurate some of these predictions are with considering all of the different metrics that, you know, variables that you mentioned, or, are, or is it, does it tend to be pretty spot on? In the moment, it tends to be pretty spot on. So once we see how things are playing out with the day, like looking at storms yesterday, we could see kind of what the rain rates were. We could see that some storms were producing an inch per hour rates. So then we can apply that being like, okay, this is what the atmosphere is already producing. So it's much easier whenever you're in the moment and you're seeing how the storms are reacting that day. But looking a couple days in advance, it's, it's hard to nail down that kind of detail just because there's so many variables at play like we've already discussed. Yeah, it's so interesting. And so here near Moab, we had the Pack Creek fire up in the LaSalle's. And then from that fire, you know, we had a lot of flooding from that area. And so when that, when you know, when we know that a fire has happened, are there special things that the Weather Service does to kind of watch over, watch over and, and monitor that area, knowing that the vegetation that stabilizes the soil has, has burned, that there'll likely be more runoff? Yes, absolutely. So we work closely. We have a service hydrologist whose main job is to work with our different hydrology partners. So in the case of the burn scars, after every fire, they have a specialized team called the BEAR team. I couldn't tell you what the initials stand for, but they basically come and they do post-fire analysis. They just kind of look and see what parts of the fire, the land burn more severely than others. And we're able to just kind of take that all to, into account to kind of get an average of what rainfall totals will likely produce flooding. And we take into account the 15 minute totals, the 30 minute totals, the hour totals, and just kind of get an idea of what could produce the runoff. And obviously it's a learning curve because, you know, most of these fires, it takes a while for them to get tested. Like down in Arizona, since we hadn't had on soon for a couple of years, they had one of their fires from back in 2019 that had never seen significant rain before based on the not having a monsoon. And so 
sometimes it takes a couple years even to find out how a fire is going to respond to heavy rain. So with the Pack Creek, we have a general idea of what rain totals to look out for. We take into account the drainages, so where that heavy rain is going to go into, if it's going to drain into the Pack Creek and all that stuff like that, and how it's going to eventually run off and impact other areas downstream. So if, you know, it looks like a flash flood is going to happen in an area, what kind of things happened in order to, you know, let the public know? I know I've I've been get I was woken up a few weeks ago on my phone from a, a a loud beeping from a flash flood warning. Can you can you talk about those watches and warning systems? We have a couple of different products that we sent out. We have just starting at the basic level looking up to a week out, we have our hazardous weather outlook and then that we have a daily product that we just talk about what the weather outlook is expected to be for the next week. So we talk about if there's the potential for some showers and thunderstorms that could produce some heavy rain. And then as we get closer to the event itself, up to, it's generally one to two days out, we have our flash flood watch. And sometimes we do it just for burn scars if it's looking like it's just going to impact a fire. And other times we do it for entire counties and forecast zones. So with this other event, most recently, we knew we were going to get some pretty widespread precipitation. So that's why we made the call to do those widespread flash flood watches. And that's basically just a heads up, just to know that we've gotten some more detail and we're confident that it's usually 50% higher or higher that we're going to have flash flooding somewhere in that that zone that has the watch in effect. And that's just letting everyone know that we are increased confidence that flash flooding could happen with any showers and thunderstorms. And then finally, looking at the most short-term product, we have our flash flood warning, and that is usually issued within an hour or less, just because we're confident that flash flooding is either occurring or it's going to occur or it's already happening at that moment or it's imminent. So those are just kind of the products that we have. And I mean, we're here 24 seven. So we're just always watching the, the weather and seeing how things are playing out and getting those messages out to the public. You know, considering that a lot of people around here are out in the backcountry for long periods of time and that as you're describing, predicting the weather in advance can be pretty difficult and people might not have their cell phone, you know, cell phone access when they are out in the backcountry, what are some of the things that people can do or if anything to, you know, kind of be aware if they're going to be in a flash flood area this time of year? So one of the sayings that we have here at the Weather Service is know before you go. And that really is just letting people know that they need to check the forecast before heading out. Hopefully everyone is more familiar with especially if they're going into the, if they're going to climb a 14er or whatever they're going to do, they know that storms tend to fire after the midday point. That's usually when things are picking up in the afternoon. So if they're doing anything outdoors, making sure that they try to finish their plans before those storms start firing off around midday. And also just being familiar with the area itself when it comes to the lower elevations, those slot canyons, even if it's not raining over the canyon itself, it can certainly flood the canyon you know, if rain is coming from way upstream. So really just being aware of where you're going and what the weather is forecast to do that day. It is definitely hard whenever you're in those remote areas with no cell phone service. So satellite phones are a great thing to have because you can, with some of them, you can get the weather forecast right there. You can even pull up radar on some of them, I believe, and 
at worst comes worse, you can always give us a call on those satellite phones here at the weather service and we can give you a briefing of what's happening. As far as flash flood safety, we always say turn around, don't drown. So if you're driving down the road and you see some floodwaters, you need to turn around because you don't know how deep that water is. You don't know if the road is even still there or if it's been washed out. And then if you're outside just doing any sort of activity, you wanna make sure that you get to higher ground as well. If it's flooding in the canyon or something, you just need to get up and get to higher ground. So I was leaving situationally aware is the, the biggest help for what people can do to stay safe. Awesome. Well, thanks for providing that information. And thanks so much, Megan, for talking to us and, and for your time and explaining to us how these, how these models and weather predictions work. Yeah, absolutely. And once we get back to quote unquote normal after everything, we always, ex- or we accept tours. So if anyone's ever interested in coming to look at our operations or to watch a weather balloon launch, uh, feel free to get in contact with us and we can try to schedule something uh, once we're allowing visitors again. That sounds cool. I want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.